0: everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 10 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. The Constitution provides that the U.S. Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments and requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate to convict. Since 1789, about half of all Senate impeachment trials have resulted in conviction and removal from office. But when it comes to trying a president in the Senate, the odds are much longer, as all three presidents who have faced impeachment trials have been acquitted. My guest on today's show will take us behind the scenes of the most recent impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump to discuss the legal strategy, political realities, and challenges faced by the House managers when prosecuting the president. I'm honored to have as the guest on the show today Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead House manager for the second impeachment trial of President Trump. Congressman Raskin represents Maryland's 8th Congressional District in the House, and in January 2021, he was sworn into his third term and currently serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the Committee on Oversight and Reform, the Committee on House Administration, the Rules Committee, and the Coronavirus Select Subcommittee. Prior to his time in Congress, Representative Raskin was a three-term state senator in Maryland, where he also served as a Senate Majority Whip. He was a professor of constitutional law at American University's College of Law for more than 25 years. He has authored several books, including the Washington Post bestseller, Overruling Democracy, the Supreme Court versus the American People, and the highly acclaimed We the Students, Supreme Court Cases for and About America's Students. Representative Raskin is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Welcome to the show, Congressman.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to do it, Dave.
0: Well, let's just jump right in. I I know that a lot of our listeners are very interested in how careers get started. And you were a law professor for many years. Why did you decide to jump into politics?
1: Uh, The state senator for my district introduced a bill to dramatically expand the death penalty in Maryland. And um, when I looked into it, also it introduced a pro-Iraq war resolution and had been blocking marriage equality. And so this was back in 2006. And I just felt that that was antithetical to how most of the people in our community felt about stuff. And I said, I was going to run. And people said, you can't run against a 32-year incumbent who was president pro tem of the Senate at the time and the boss of our local machine. And I just say, well, why not? And they'd say, well, because you can't run against the machine. And I'd say, well, who's the machine? And they would name like three or four people. And I said, we got 175,000 people in our district. And so those will be the last four people I go talk to. I go talk to everybody else first. And my favorite story about that race is when I, I first announced the Washington Post had an article quoting a pundit who said, Raskin's chances of victory are considered impossible. And then nine months later, we got 67% of the vote. And they had another article quoting a pundit who said Raskin's victory was inevitable. It was really <laughs> possible to inevitable in nine months because the pundits are never wrong.
0: Amazing. Um, so for young lawyers or folks who are attorneys and interested in getting into politics, what sort of advice might you have for folks?
1: Well, I would just say nothing in politics is impossible and nothing is inevitable. It's only possible through the democratic arts of Education and organizing and mobilizing people for change. And, you know, sometimes young people will come to me and tell me that they want to run for office and they're like, you know, 24 years old or something. And I'd say, well, that's great if this is, you know, the only thing you want to do and you're sure this is it. But I'd say the people I find most effective in a parliamentary process are people who've done something else with their lives. You know, like when I was in the state Senate, I had colleagues who'd been a chief of police a farmer, a firefighter, one guy, Andy Harris, who now serves with me in Congress, very right-wing conservative guy, but he was a, a surgeon, a doctor at Johns Hopkins, and everybody would defer to him on questions about medicine and healthcare, you know, and the guy who was the chief of police, everybody would ask him questions about law enforcement. So, a lot of the authority that I've been able to develop in the legislative process is because Uh, I was a professor of constitutional law, and I have an independent body of knowledge that I'm able to bring to bear on the legislative process.
0: Well, and it seems that you were, because of that background, the obvious choice to be the lead impeachment manager on the House side on the second impeachment trial of of President Trump. Is that why Speaker Pelosi must have thought that that background was obviously very important uh, when selecting you in that role?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a member of the Judiciary Committee, which is generally a primary jurisdiction over impeachment. I was a member of the Oversight Committee. And uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I've tried to bring my constitutional law expertise into the process by making difficult concepts and controversies clear to my colleagues and clear to the country. Of course, I was also there on January 6th and was there with my daughter, Tabitha, and my son-in-law, Hank. And so I was also deeply affected and invested in,
0: you know, the whole process. Absolutely. And kind of getting into the the impeachment trial, I thought, you know, one of the more fascinating parts of it was, you know, when you sort of delved back into your constitutional law experience and actually talked about one of your students and co-managers, Congresswoman Plaskett from the Virgin Islands. Talk a little bit about that relationship and she did obviously did a great job during her presentation but talk a little bit about her and 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 your role with her
1: well yeah i mean stacy plaskett and i have been close for decades she was my student and i actually taught her criminal law and procedure and encouraged her to become a prosecutor which she did and i thought she'd make a great prosecutor and she was always a little bit conservative for my taste, but most people are. You know? And um, but I've just loved her uh, as long as I've known her, and she's brilliant and she's a dazzling lawyer. And so, for me, as lead impeachment manager, I was blessed to have her uh, on my side, and we got to work really closely together. And I will always treasure those times that we got to work together. You know, over
0: uh, many weeks. Excellent. Well, let's get into the specifics of the impeachment trial. So, you know, many litigators have been in front of hostile benches or appellate courts or juries. How did your team approach the challenge of getting 17 Republicans to vote to convict a president of their own party? I think people are very interested in how you were able to tailor your arguments or if you didn't, what was the strategy behind that?
1: Well, I rejected the idea that we were looking for 17 Republicans because that accepted all of the partisan premises that some of our Republican colleagues were advancing, like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Rand Paul. I mean, I was going, you know, the reporters would say to me, can you get to 67? Can you get 17 Republicans? And, I, and I'd and i say, you know what? I don't think so, but I think we might be able to get to 100 because- I think we're going to put on such a devastating presentation of the facts of the case and such a compelling argument about how um, impeachment and conviction and removal and disqualification are the only appropriate constitutional responses to what we just saw, that the whole Senate would get swept away with it. And I think that, I mean, up until the very end, I was entertaining the notion that the GOP senators would really come with an open mind. But they never laid a glove on the factual evidence that we produced. And their constitutional arguments, uh, which you probably saw, were tremendously slipshod and superficial. And I thought that we demolished them. But I I knew it would be hard to win by 67 because if you're the, the 17th Republican vote, uh, there's going to be all kinds of pressure brought down on you not to do it. But if there's a cascade of public opinion and the GOP just says with Mitch McConnell's leadership, we've got to do this for the country, we got to do this for the Constitution, and we've got to do it for our own party because Donald Trump will destroy us if we continue to bow down to him like some sort of religious cult leader. That was my hope that we would create a dynamic of action and understanding which would cause the bottom to fall out on the Trump defense. And the irony is I think we kind of did that. I think that, I mean, you know, some of the news commentators were describing it as like the greatest mismatch of a prosecution team and a defense team that they'd ever seen. And that wasn't because of the personnel that was because of the case that we had versus their lack of any defense or alibi at all.
0: Well, and the facts did not seem to be in dispute, but the Trump lawyers seemed to take head on that the very issue of the politics, that this was a politically motivated prosecution using a video montage of democratic politicians using, you know, a certain language. And did you feel that your side, that the prosecution side did enough to sort of overcome those arguments by President Trump's lawyers?
1: Well, I mean, we obviously moved seven Republicans in in the Senate who came with us when the predictions had been that there might be two or three. So we definitely moved some Republicans, and they were from all over the country, New England, the Mid-Atlantic, the Midwest, the South, the West, Alaska, you know. So we were able to move a substantial number of them. However, most of them decided to hang their hats on the argument that, The Senate did not have jurisdiction to conduct trial of the former president. That jurisdictional argument was actually raised and rejected and settled on the first day of trial. But the uh, president's lawyers, Trump's lawyers, continue to push it throughout the trial. And I think, obviously, if you saw McConnell's speech afterwards, you'll understand that that was What he said, because he said that the prosecution team had basically made our case that he agreed with us that Trump was singularly, morally, ethically, factually responsible, uh, for the events, uh, and had incited the insurrection. But he said he didn't think that the Senate could conduct the trial. That was totally at odds with more than two centuries of Senate precedent where former officials were tried. And it also is totally in tension with the language of the constitution, because Trump was impeached while he was president for conduct he committed while he was president. And the Senate's responsibilities under article one are to try all impeachments. And this was an impeachment. So that didn't seem like a, a tough logical syllogism for most people. But the problem is that Donald Trump does exercise this kind of spellbinding control and stranglehold over the GOP. And that's what we were up against. There were a lot of senators who did not want to be running against a Trump-endorsed primary opponent to their right. And it's
0: interesting also, if you think about the differences between a jury trial or a bench trial and and a trial in the Senate, not only do you have these political considerations, but you also have the major differences in that you don't have very basic things like jury instructions or basic jurisdictional questions that can be questioned and answered um, That's right. so the jury can get on to the factual determinations. And so talk a little bit more about that and sort of that there was, it seemed to be no real guiding precedent or guiding yeah. for the the jurors to uh, go after. President Trump's lawyers were essentially able to, to say, well, there are many reasons to acquit and just pick one of them. And in a regular jury trial, you wouldn't have that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they basically said, here's the kitchen sink. Um, Here's some procedural jurisdictional arguments that have already been settled and rejected by the court, by the Senate itself. But if you want to vote to acquit on this basis, that's totally legit. Just throw it into the kitchen sink with our due process argument and our First Amendment argument and our argument that, you know, one of the, the videos was edited in a way that was unfair, but we won't explain why, you know. I mean, they just, wanted to add everything together and to create a make-weight argument. So, But look, one day I was sitting there and I made a list of all the reasons I could think of that a, a Senate impeachment trial is different from a real trial. And I think I ended up with 13 reasons. But I mean, start with the jury. I mean, when you impanel a real jury, they go through the voir dire process. There's questioning and the whole idea is to create an impartial jury. That's not even the idea on the Senate side, the senators have. Now, they do have to swear an oath that they will render impartial justice, but they've been elected in a partisan campaign. They work in partisan caucuses. I wanted to introduce a motion to change their seating arrangement so that they wouldn't be seated according to the Democrats here and the Republicans there. But I was told that this would tremendously alienate the Republicans and maybe even some Democrats, and nobody wanted to move their desk and so on. Well, what you ended up with was groups of senators caucusing together and talking on their side. And there were you know, a couple of days when there were news reports about Republican senators getting together and going to meet with the defense lawyers to help them with strategy. So that's obviously a huge difference from what you would find in a trial. That would be grounds for an automatic mistrial if you had jurors getting together to caucus with the lawyers on one side.
0: Well, and, and another huge difference is the, the fact that you didn't have any witnesses. Um, you had some great video evidence uh, that was presented, but no witnesses. And, it, and that seemed to be like it was going to be a turning point for the trial. Yes, it would have extended it quite a bit, but it seemed like you know to bring live witnesses into the trial, it would have changed the trial dramatically, but then it ended kind of with a whimper, with a brief stipulation. So what was well- the thinking behind entering into that stipulation?
1: We got everything that we wanted out of it. The only witness we wanted was Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler from Washington, who was prepared to testify that the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, told her that he'd called Donald Trump on January 6th and said, come and help us. And Trump said, it's not my people, it's Antifa. And McCarthy said, no, it's not Antifa. We're looking at them. It's your people. And then Trump's response was, maybe they just care more about a fair election than you do, Kevin, which basically confirmed everything that we were arguing that Trump had incited the insurrection. He was continuing to incite the insurrection. He knew exactly what was taking place. He wanted the violence to be taking place. And he also did nothing to help. So we were prepared to call her. The Republicans immediately started threatening that if we got witnesses, they wanted witnesses. And we knew that there were uh, not just Republicans, but Democrats who said that they would agree to GOP witnesses if there were gonna be Democratic witnesses. And they said that they were gonna call Vice President Kamala Harris. They were gonna call Nancy Pelosi. They were throwing all this stuff out there. And the truth was there were no other witnesses we needed. You know, People were saying, well, why don't you call Kevin McCarthy? Well, because not to put too fine a point on it, these politicians know how to lie. And so he could say, oh, well, yes, I think the president just didn't understand what was happening and, you know, when he said maybe they care more about a fair election, really all that he was saying was um, they were willing to engage in peaceful civil disobedience and I wasn't or whatever. I mean, you know, the politicians, uh, and forgive me for castigating my own group here, but a lot of them know how to slice the baloney very fine I mean, there were people who were barricading the doors to try to save us on January 6th who are now out there saying that the whole thing was like uh, an innocent tourist visit, you know? So we had no confidence that calling Kevin McCarthy or Mike Pence, for that matter, would redound to our benefit. The, The bottom line was we'd proven our case overwhelmingly. We had a staggering volume of evidence that Donald Trump had done everything in his power to recruit the mob, assemble the mob, incite the mob, galvanize the mob, and unleash the mob on the Capitol. Um, the, The problem wasn't any shortage of evidence. The problem was that you had these senators who were saying, well, maybe all that's true, but we don't think we have jurisdictional authority. And that was simply because of the correlation of political forces within the GOP. They just felt like they could not take on Donald Trump. And so they ended up, I mean, he was the dominant figure by far then, but they ended up elevating his status to something even more extreme, where he's kind of like a cult leader now, and you can't cross him in any way. So we thought that there was very little benefit in going forward once we had extracted the stipulation that she could enter this statement, and it was totally uncontradicted. So it was uncontradicted evidence. Meantime, it would have opened up this complete pandora's box as they would have started calling you know nancy pelosi and kamala harris and turning it into a circus which is what we see the republicans do pretty much on a daily basis in hearings uh, on capitol hill
0: well and i know uh you know our time is short and we're coming down to the last few minutes here and it sounded like even during the vote that you were confident about how things would have gone for your side Tell me about how you were feeling as the vote uh, was taking place.
1: Wait, first of all, let me tell you how I feel now, and then I'm happy to reconstruct that. I mean, I feel very good about the trial right now. We ended up with a 57 to 43 vote in favor of conviction. That is a dramatic, bipartisan, and ultimately bicameral statement that the president incited violent insurrection against the union. So I think Although Donald Trump beat the constitutional spread of two thirds, we convicted him in the eyes of public opinion and that we convicted him in the court of history. So I believe that he is a pariah in American politics, except that he is a cult leader within the GOP. And that means that they are a small and shrinking political party, but still a great danger because they're increasingly Polarizing the country and their conduct is increasingly extreme. And I, I really warned, you know, my Republican Senate colleagues when they came to talk to me that this would be our destiny as a country if they didn't convict him, remove him, and disqualify him from holding office in the future. He would destroy the Republican Party, and I think that that is, um, you know, that supposition is coming to bear right now. So um, how I felt at the time, I, I really, you know, maybe one of the things that kept me going was that I believed that we could get to 100. In other words, I thought that there would be such a vast distance between our evidentiary proof in our legal arguments and what Trump's lawyers did that the GOP leadership would just experience the bottom falling out on their defense. And they would have taken it as the moment to cleanse their party of this infection of corruption and unconstitutionality, but uh, they didn't do that. And so I thought things were going well because the the balloting was in alphabetical order, and we had Richard Burr in North Carolina, and we weren't expecting him as a, as a necessary vote for us. And then we had um, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, and he voted for us. So we just, at that point, we had two very early Republican senators from southern states who we were not expecting vote for us. And I really thought we were headed in the direction of a win. But unfortunately, the other five who came along were um, ones who had broken with Trump in different ways in the past and who we had on our prospective list, like Mitt Romney and Murkowski and Susan Collins. So I um, I felt that I had let our team down. At the end, I felt a bit crushed by it. I mean, obviously, I was very emotional at that time. We had just lost our son, Tommy, at the end of 2020, and we had been through the nightmare of January 6th. With family, and um, I really thought that it might be a moment where the whole country would come together and Congress would unite, and it was not to be. But as I said, I, I have felt better about it looking back on it now. It, you know, it was the most bipartisan Senate conviction vote in the history of the country. As you know, there have only been four trials. There was Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, Trump one, and Trump two, and except for Romney's vote in um, Trump one, all of those presidential impeachments have been completely partisan affairs. And we had 17 Republicans break party ranks to vote with us in the House and the Senate.
0: Right. So very last question, what is sort of the next stage in the investigation of the January 6th incident? I understand there's gonna be a House uh, committee investigation.
1: Yeah, but we had advanced uh, an independent bipartisan commission like the 9-11 Commission, which would have been not members of Congress, but, you know, distinguished former attorneys general or secretaries of state or, you know, police chiefs or what have you. And it would have been uh, five Republican appointees, five Democratic appointees, equal subpoena power right down the middle, and which is what the Republicans had been asking for. But the GOP could not tolerate the idea of a serious investigation into the events and the causes of January 6th. So we, um, in the House, uh, pushed for uh, a resolution to create a select committee that would investigate. And that's what we did. And um, We named the members today. Uh, I'm one of the members of that select committee, and so we're determined to... Deliver a comprehensive and authoritative report about what happened and why, and what are the ongoing threats, and what do we need to do to address them?
0: Well, I know we'll all be looking forward to that investigation and to that report. And uh, I really appreciate, Congressman, you coming on the show today, giving us uh, your views on the second impeachment trial and uh, the differences and the challenges uh, that you face. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And
1: I appreciate that very much. I mean, remember, uh, People died that day, uh, more than 145 of our officers were brutally assaulted with baseball bats and Confederate battle flags and Trump flags and lost fingers and eyes and experienced traumatic brain injury. Um, it's just a nightmare what happened. And we could have lost our democracy that day because it was an attempt to overthrow the counting of the electoral college votes. And so, you know, that's another dimension of this that we have to look at, how are we going to protect our presidential elections? Is it possible to protect them consistent with the electoral college system that we've got in place today? So there's a lot to examine, a lot to look at. And I appreciate your uh, talking to me about sort of the litigation dimensions of this.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, it's really important to remember, as you said, the lives that were lost, but also the great Americans who've been in service of this country. And so thank you for your service. And, you know, even though president trump was not convicted whatever your uh the listener's political affiliations you know we have to remember that everyone um at the capitol is you know serving their country and obviously doing uh the best that they can uh, for their constituents so thank you again for your service and for being on the show today
1: i appreciate it all best to you
0: thank you congressman And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. And I'm very happy to have Daryl Wilson back on the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. Welcome back, Daryl. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here with you. Awesome. Well, I understand you're going to help us out with
2: artificial intelligence today. So what's your quick tip? Thanks, Dave. Yes, today I'll be talking about artificial intelligence and legal issues. I was reading an article in the ABA Litigations magazine, and it was very interesting that it focused on this topic. And so I wanted to take my time today to offer a few tips on artificial intelligence and the legal issues that may arise in using artificial intelligence. As the world evolves, we see that technology is used to aid or assist in many different avenues. This is no different in the legal profession. Artificial intelligence is used in the selection of applicants for interviews and or promotions. It is also used in the court system when applying sentencing in criminal matters. AI refers to the development of computer systems that can mimic human decision making and perform tasks that generally require human intelligence. AI uses algorithms, which are a set of rules that a computer can execute. The data is put into the algorithm, which applies those instructions and produces an output. Some artificial intelligence system includes algorithms that learn from data or improve automatically. However, many legal issues can arise when you're using AI. One of the most common is that AI can be biased. While we may think of algorithms as simply being math and other neutral studies uh, have shown that algorithms can be tainted by the human bias. Bias can be intentionally introduced into the algorithms by the people who design them, Programmers can build bias into algorithms by relying on data that they know are biased against a certain racial or religious group or that reflect historical discrimination. Algorithms can also be affected by the implicit or unconscious bias of the people who program them. The design decisions of well-intentioned programmers can be influenced by their sociological background and experiences, which may lead them to rely on data that favor a certain group or disadvantage another group without being aware of it. If AI influences a decision as to who gets hired or promoted or receives a pay increase, it can be an instrument of unlawful employment discrimination. An algorithm for ranking candidates for a promotion, for example, can explicitly include an identifier for a race. So bias within AI has been addressed through the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where employment discrimination cases under the Title VII generally fall into two categories. Those are desperate treatment and desperate impact. I want to take the time to kind of mention those two today and kind of explain what those look like when using AI. In desperate treatment cases, the plaintiff must show that the employer intended to discriminate on the basis of some prohibited characteristic. However, the intent is often difficult to demonstrate when the decision maker is not a person, but an algorithm. All right. So I want to actually use an example that I read from this article that I'm referring to from the ABA. And that example is, suppose a Black employee alleges discrimination because he was denied a promotion that went to an arguably less qualified white worker. This plaintiff would have to meet the minimal burden of providing facts from which an inference of discrimination could be drawn. The employer, however, could then present evidence that it based its decision on a promotion algorithm and not necessarily from actual employees at the job. At that point, it's the plaintiff's burden of proof to demonstrate that notwithstanding the seemingly race-neutral basis for its decision, the employer's real motive was discriminatory in nature. The plaintiff might attempt to show that the employer created the algorithm with the intention of favoring white employees, but few employers develop their own A.I., Most oftentimes, it's developed by a third party that the employer has a license to use. And the plaintiff might try to demonstrate that the employer knew this and that relying on this tool would have a discriminatory effect. Finally, that plaintiff must strive to demonstrate that the output of the AI tool was dependent on output from the employer and that the employer knowingly provided this biased data. And that is an example of the desperate treatment. So here, another one is desperate impact. The desperate impact cases, the employer uses a facially neutral method for allocating employment benefits, which is claimed to have an effect discriminating on the basis of prescribed characteristics such as race. A promotion algorithm may be a neutral tool. And to challenge it, the plaintiff need not show discriminatory Nature, but would likely rely on statistical analysis demonstrating that the use of AI resulted in white candidates being favored over black candidates for promotion after controlling the factors other than race. Once the plaintiff has demonstrated that the algorithm has a desperate impact, the employer is entitled to demonstrate that it nevertheless performing a legitimate function here, the selection of qualified applicants for the promotion was based on this algorithm. If the employer satisfies this obligation, the burden then shifts back to the plaintiff to show that other selection devices without a similarly desperate effect on black candidates would also serve the employer's legitimate interests. Thus, the plaintiff must not only demonstrate the differential impact of the algorithm, but it must also identify an alternative, non discriminatory selection method that meets the employer's needs. Legally, it seems that there are many hurdles still left to overcome with the use of AI. However, with proper bias training for programmers and additional time to knock out some kinks, AI can help to move the world forward. And Dave, that has been my tip on artificial intelligence, and I thank you for having me on the show today. Excellent. Well,
0: really interesting food for thought, Daryl. Really appreciate it. I guess it's true what they say, that the output is only as good as the input, and I really appreciate you bringing this information regarding artificial intelligence to the table. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Well, just as a reminder to everyone, uh, this helpful content is available free to ABA litigation section members through publications like Litigation Journal, which is published quarterly and is the preeminent journal in the field of trial practice. To find out more information on how to become a litigation section member, go to ambar.org slash litigation. And that's all we have for our episode today. And I want to thank Samantha Brown, Josie Farron, Diane Blagman, and Ruth Bahayakna, who helped me with guest preparation and booking. And as always, my gratitude goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, as well as Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. The show was produced fabulously by Rich Rivera. Thanks so much, Rich, for your great work. And thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.